Turn with me to Exodus chapter 20. Exodus chapter 20. We're going to read verses 18 through 26. If you haven't been with us the past few weeks, this follows immediately after the giving of the Ten Commandments, which is one of the more famous passages in the Bible and one that probably more people know than any other. So Israel's at Mount Sinai. Moses goes up to talk to God. The mountain has huge uh, physical changes. There's smoke, there's lightning, there's earthquakes, there's loud noises. It's terrifying. So Moses goes up, God speaks to him, and speaks to the people, gives them the Ten Commandments. And what we're going to start with today is what immediately happened after God gave them those commandments. Verse 18, now all the people witnessed the thunderings the lightning flashes, the sound of the trumpet, and the mountain smoking. And when the people saw it, they trembled and stood afar off. Then they said to Moses, You speak with us, and we will hear, but let not God speak with us, lest we die. And Moses said to the people, Do not fear, for God has come to test you, and that his fear may be before you, so that you may not sin. So the people stood afar off, but Moses drew near. He drew near the thick darkness where God was. Then the Lord said to Moses, Thus you shall say to the children of Israel, You have seen that I have talked with you from heaven. You shall not make anything to be with me, gods of silver or gods of gold. You shall not make for yourselves. An altar of earth you shall make for me. You shall sacrifice on it your burnt offerings and your peace offerings, your sheep and your oxen. In every place where I record my name, I will come to you and I will bless you. And if you make me an altar of stone, you shall not build it of, of hewn stone. That means you shape it with a, with a tool. For if you use your tool on it, you have profaned it. Nor shall you go up by steps to my altar, that your nakedness may not be exposed on it. It's a little weird, isn't it? It's a little different. Probably because it was written a long time ago. But when we look at it, we're going to see that it is the response to the giving of the law. So remember, God gives the Ten Commandments, which encompasses the entire law of God in a condensed, sort of packed form. In the next chapter, he's going to unfold it a little bit, but he gives them everything he wants them to do, which can be summed up in love God and love your neighbor, and he gives it to them in person. The people of God meeting with God at a certain place. Sounds great, doesn't it? One of the reasons this passage is given to us to show that it's not always great. And so we see that we have a holy God, a sinful people, and a grace that reconciles. And that actually repeats itself twice in this passage, the first section and the second section. So look at the first section. Israel after the giving of the law. So God gives the law, love your neighbor, love, your, love God, love your neighbor, and the people responded. Now here's the thing, when God speaks to people, it's not... Normal. What does it look like for God to come down to people? We often have sort of calm, peaceful images. But this passage shows us something different. So when God meets with his people, here's what it looked like. Thunderings, lightning flashes, the sound of the trumpet, and the mountain smoking. And the people were terrified of it. You see, they'd never seen God like this before. They'd never met personally with God like this. And they were scared. God is holy. 
His very presence in a sinful world changes things. It shakes the mountain. God is revealing himself here. He's not holding back things like he used to. And a holy God in a sinful world is a clash. And so God is pulling back the curtain a little bit. He's saying, here's what I look like. It's scary, isn't it? It sounds great. Some people say, you know, if God would just speak to me from heaven, I would believe in him. They don't know what they're asking. Because even God's own people, when they heard God speak from heaven, they ran away. They said they, they trembled and stood afar off. Have you ever seen a grown man tremble with fear? It doesn't happen very often. It's not a pretty sight. It makes everybody else around him nervous too. Like, why is everyone scared and shaking? Imagine a whole group of people, thousands of people, united in fear, running away. That's what it looks like for God to speak. God in his mercy does not speak to us from heaven like he did to them. But part of it was because what had God just given them? A perfect standard. He said, here's how you should live if you want to be friends with me. So God's presence is terrible, but his standard is terrible too. It's awe-inspiring. Israel must have heard the Ten Commandments and thought, we're not doing this. You see, the law of God invoked fear in them. God's presence and God's law caused his own people to shake and run away. It reveals man's sinfulness. So you have a holy God, which reveals a sinful man. There was physical weakness. When an earthquake happens, there's nothing you can do about it. Earthquakes are scary because it's, it's everything. Everything's shaking. And you realize how weak you are and how powerless you are to stop anything. Similar to being in a storm, being on the ocean, uh, being struck by lightning. There's just nothing you can do about it. There's nothing any human can do about it. So they realized that their own physical being couldn't stand the presence of God. Sin is not just about doing wrong things. It's about being the wrong kind of person. It's having the wrong kind of body. Not that you should have somebody else's body, because guess what? Theirs is wrong too. It's understanding that all people are corrupted by sin. There's no way out. You see, it wasn't some people stayed by the mountain, some ran away. They all ran away because they were all scared, because they were all corrupt. Their own bodies were trembling with fear. Their own bodies showed the fear of sin in them. But their hearts also convicted them. They said to Moses, you speak with us and we will hear. But let not God speak with us, lest we die. They understood early in their, the formation of his people that when a holy God confronts a sinful man, it doesn't turn out well for the sinful man. Now, what's interesting about this passage is it's really a preview of what God's going to do later in the book of Revelation. When God confronts sinful man, the world changes around him. In Revelation chapter 6, so now we go to the very end of the Bible, the future, and, it, and John says, here's what it looks like the next time God comes back like this. I looked when he opened the sixth seal, and behold, there was a great earthquake, and the sun became black as sackcloth of hair, and the moon became like blood, and the stars of heaven fell to the earth. Then the sky receded as a scroll when it was rolled up, and every mountain and island was moved out of its place, and the kings of the earth 
the great men, the rich men, the commanders, the mighty men, every slave and every free man hid themselves in the caves and in the rocks of the mountains and said to the mountains and the rocks, fall on us and hide us from the face of him who sits on the throne and from the wrath of the lamb. For the great day of his wrath has come and who is able to stand? You see, the children of Israel saw a little bit of that. But there's a day coming when everyone's going to see the full wrath of God. And they're going to say, somebody kill us to save us from God. You see, that's what hell is. Hell's an escape from God. Because the presence of God for sinful man is too much to bear. You want to die in the face of it. And Israel saw that. So why do we look at this passage? To warn us about what's coming. To warn us of the wrath to come. It should never be said that we did not warn people that one day you will stand before God, and if you stand as a sinful man, you're going to beg the rocks to fall on you. And that's what they saw here. They said, you speak with us because if we talk to him, our hearts convict us. He'll kill us. There was conviction. And so what they asked for, they needed grace. They needed someone to buffer God's presence. They said, Moses should be a mediator. You go between us. We can't hear God's word too much for us. So you listen to God's word, then you come tell us what he said. Grace reconciles. So God says, I'll, I'll abide by that. You see, God didn't have to work through Moses. You see the grace? He says, okay, I'll work through Moses because you won't listen, so I'll use him. So Moses speaks for God. And what does he say to him? And Moses said to the people, do not fear. For God has come to test you, and this fear may be before you so that you may not sin. Where did Moses get that message from? He got it from God. So what Moses is saying, he says, I'll translate, I'll interpret God's voice to you because you can't do it yourself because you're too afraid. So a mediator does this. They speak for God. They reveal his purpose. Moses says, here's why God has brought you here. Not so that you'll be afraid of dying, but that you'll know that God is with you and that he wants you to follow him, that you'll see who God is. He explains God's will. He said that, you may f- that the fear of him may be before you so that you may not sin. See the mediator? He explains God's will to the people. He communicates to the people what God wants for them. That's what Moses was doing here. He also speaks to God for them. So the people stood afar off, but Moses drew near. See the contrast? They said, we can't handle it. Moses says, okay, I'll do it for you. And he goes into the cloud. Someone said, a mediator goes where no one else dares to. So, of course, I thought of Star Trek. To boldly go where no man has gone before. Or modern, to boldly go where no one has gone before. Isn't that what the Starship Enterprise did? It's scary out there in space. Everyone's like, oh, you go out there, you tell us what you saw, come back and tell us. That's what Moses was doing for them. They were afraid to go before God, so Moses went for them and brought the word back. Here's the application for us. God hasn't changed one bit. God has not changed one bit. And if he were to remove some of his grace and show his presence to the world, the same thing would happen. God is still holy, and man is still weak. Man has not improved since then. So sometimes we look back at these people and they're like, ah, Stone Age, Copper Bronze Age. Pagans, they don't know anything. They're the same. 
They don't have as much education, technology maybe, but the people are the same. Their hearts are the same, their bodies are the same. So we still have a holy God, we still have a weak man, and we still need an interpreter for God's word. I, heard some, I saw someone uh, post this week that said, stop acting like you know what the Bible says, you only know how it's interpreted. And if you study church history, you'll see that the Bible has been used to justify all sorts of things. Now, his implication was everyone, no one really knows what it says, which is difficult, isn't it? How can one politician get up and use the Bible to justify a policy and another politician get up and say the same thing for the opposite policy, which is right? The Bible can be manipulated, so who interprets it? But here's something we have to understand about the Bible. The Bible has a mediator in it. You see, Moses wrote Exodus, correct? Well, how do we know how to interpret Moses? God didn't just say, figure it out. What did he do? He gave us Deuteronomy. He gave us Judges. He gave us Prophets. He gave us Proverbs, Psalms. Then he gave us the New Testament. What are those? Those are mediators. You see, God says, you can't understand Exodus by yourself. So I'll tell somebody else to explain it to you. We're going to go to the book of Hebrews later. That's what the book of Hebrews is. It's another person mediating Exodus to us, explaining Exodus to us. How can we trust that interpreter? Because God told them how to do it. So the Bible is not simply one book written by one person. So the Quran is that way. If you read the Quran, it's all written. They believe God gave it to Muhammad. But it's just one penman, as it were. But the Bible's not that way. God gave us mediators within the text of Scripture to explain Scripture to us. You want to know what Exodus says? Listen to Paul. Listen to Peter. Listen to the prophets as they interpret it for you. And you can trust them because they were also inspired. This is why it's so important to study the whole Bible. Otherwise, you get locked down into one interpretation. You see, when people misinterpret the Bible, it's often because they're only looking at one part of the Bible. They're not reading the other parts. Because the other parts mediate. Just like Moses said, you heard God's word, but you didn't understand it. So let me explain it to you. But how could they trust Moses? Because God sent Moses. So how do we know that Exodus is talking the truth? Partly because the book of Hebrews tells us. And the author of Hebrews was sent from God too. You want to know what the Bible means in an age when no one knows what anything means? Listen to it. Listen to it interpret itself. Listen to the authors interpret each other, knowing that God has given us mediators. But there's more here. So they respond, and they say, Moses, mediate to us, communicate. And God says, okay, here's what life's going to look like for you in my presence after the law has been given. Because the law changes everything. Then the Lord said to Moses, thus you shall say to the children of Israel, so God's going to say, here's how you interact with me now. Now that you realize who I am and who you are, here's how you react. So again, it's the pattern of a holy God, a sinful people, and a reconciling grace. So first of all, God says, you have seen that I have talked with you from heaven. You should not make anything to be with me. He said, you've seen who I am. And who is God? He's personally involved. You see, there's a nice idea that God set the world in motion and just kind of steps back and lets it run. That's nice for people because they don't have to do what God says. God's not interacting with their lives. But see, what God says, he goes, I've spoken to you with heaven. I'm here. I'm watching. 
I'm interacting. I see what you're doing. I'm involved in your life. Which is great if you're obeying the law, isn't it? Not so much when you're not obeying the law. But God is saying, you can't put me out into the, you know, some people talk about the man upstairs. No, that's not biblical. That's a way to distance us from God. God says, I spoke to you from heaven. I came down to meet you. And so he says, I'm personally involved. So his holiness doesn't separate him from man. It clashes with it, but doesn't separate him. But also he's the Lord of worship. He says, you're going to mess things up, but you still have to do what I say. God dictates how he's worshipped. God says, I'm going to tell you what to do. Tell Israel how to worship me. You don't, the application for us is you don't get to worship God however you feel like it. Now, sometimes people are like, well, I'm sincere when I worship God. God doesn't care about that as much. What he cares about is that you do it the way he told you. Now, at this point in history, he told them how to do it in a certain way. He changed it later. So what do we do? We change our worship. But what we don't do is just say, whatever works. Whatever expresses my authentic feelings. No. Whatever God says. Now, that'll mean sometimes God doesn't say certain things that we feel are important. What do we do? We trust what God has said. We say, if God said it, we do it. And if he didn't say it, it's not that important. Now, think about worship in the church service. When we gather together as a worship, as a, as a body to worship, what should we do? Well, here's what God says. You do exactly what I told you to do. Don't come into my presence. Don't worship me unless you're doing it my way. I am God. God is to be feared, not in a sense he's going to hurt us, but a sense of he's so amazing, you do it his way. So our worship is dictated by what God has expressly said in the Bible. He said enough to get us through. Sometimes we like to add things. And we think, well, we have to add things because God doesn't say anything about it. No. That's setting ourselves up as kings. Christ is Lord of the church, just like God was Lord of Israel. And so we listen to him as he tells us how to worship. And how does he tell him to worship? Now we have the sinful man part. He says, you shall not make anything to be with me. Now, didn't he just tell him that? Thou shalt not make any other God, any graven images. Why does he tell him again? Because God knows people. And people love to make idols. John Calvin says our hearts are perpetual idol factories. Always churning out new idols. We get rid of one idol, we'll make another one. And so God says, you want to interact with me? First step, don't have anybody else with me. No one else was at Mount Sinai shaking the mountain, burning the mountain, lightning flashes. It was only God. So God says, when you come into my presence, when you worship me, don't have anything next to me. Some people say, well, God is the highest. That's not what he says here. He said, God is only. There are no other gods to be with me. There's no hierarchy of gods. Sometimes we say, well, you know, we'll make God first and then family second and church third. Be careful that you're not just setting up a hierarchy of gods. Well, God's the top God, but then family's the next God and church is the third God. You can do that very easily. And he's saying here, you shall have no other gods with me. 
not gods of silver or gods of gold. Now, we wouldn't do that, would we? Now, what he's saying to them is, what are the best things you can think of in your life? And they're like, I don't know, silver and gold back then. But what is it for us? What do we want to create? Good things that God has given us, like silver and gold, make it into something that we follow. Family, work, church body, house, whatever it is, he's saying, get rid of it. The exclusive nature of God requires that his people worship him that way. It's very difficult to do because man is sinful. His very heart creates idols. It's even worse, though. God says, an altar of earth you shall make for me. He even tells them, the very, so they're going to offer sacrifice. He says, here's how I want the thing that you're going to put the sacrifice on. I'm going to tell you how to build that too. I want it to be very simple. Get some dirt, push it together, there's your altar. That's what he says, an altar of earth you shall make for me. Not a big fancy altar, just push some dirt together and put an animal on it. You see, man doesn't just have a wicked heart, he also has a wicked body. We don't like to think of that. We like to think of, be proud of what we do. But, but look what God says. And if you make me an altar of stone, maybe the ground's too hard and you put some stones, he says, you shall not build it of hewn stone. For if you use your tool on it, you have profaned it. God says, I know you mean well, but if you do anything, it makes it worse. If you try to help me, you make it worse. Now, that's not how we think, is it? We'll do everything we can to, to make God look good, and that's going to make God look good. No, it's not. God looks good when he reveals himself. Now, he uses us to do that, but notice the thing here. When man uses his abilities, in this case, it made it worse. A rock that God created you to pull out of the ground is better than one that you shape into a nice, perfect stone. God is saying something about people here, something we don't like to hear. You don't contribute to God's glory. He is perfect. And when you try to add to his perfection, you defame defame it. This applies to a lot of things, but think about salvation. See, a lot of people say salvation is you do the best you can and God will make up the rest. No, because the minute you try to do something, you've made it worse. Jesus plus nothing. The minute you add something, to God's plan, you've made it worse. Now, it's interesting here because the people, he's not saying if you try to make altars to false gods, if you try to do the wrong thing, if you try to profane me. He's saying if you try to help me, you see, you can't trust your own motivation. You can't say, well, I meant well. You don't know what you meant. The heart is desperately wicked. Who can know it? That's what God's saying here. He's like, you thought you were trying to make it better. I'm telling you, you're making it worse. Well, if we can't trust our heart, what can we trust? Exactly. You can trust God's word. That's it. Which is why it's so important to hear God's word. Because your own heart, when you're trying to do the right thing, you're trying to help, and you're trying to make things better, God is saying, you're sinful. So God says, listen to me, and I'll tell you what you can trust. I'll tell you what to do. Trust me, not yourself. And then he says, nor shall you go up by steps to my altar. Now, if you look back at altars back then, they wanted to be high. 
talked about high places. They would build them up. The higher, the better. Doesn't that make sense, right? You want to elevate worship. You want to make it so everyone can see it. So if you make a high altar, you have to have steps to go up it. Now, it's a little, you know, it's a little indelicate here, but when they wore robes, when you walked up steps, you were exposed to the steps. And we think, so what? God doesn't care what we think. This, this passage should be confronting the Israelites and shaking them up and saying, don't do things the way you think they should be done. You see, this goes all the way back to the Garden of Eden. Man was created without clothes because there was nothing to be ashamed of because he had not sinned. But man and woman sinned, and what's the first thing they did? They covered themselves. But then you know what God did? He showed up and he said, you're sinful. And he made them clothes. Why? Because they were sinful. Sin is in our bodies. This is complicated because you don't want to you don't want to have something where you hate yourself. You don't want to hate your body. But the, on the other hand, God created clothes because of sin. And he reiterates that concept here in worship. He's saying there's parts of your body that should be clothed. Why? Because when you approach God, there's, a, there's an understanding of sin. Someone said that the more a culture gets secular, the more it rejects God, the less clothes they wear. You can perceive however you want to, but what it's saying here is there's some connection between your body and worship. And it's not just however you feel, you're fine. Now, he's not talking about other people here. Notice that too. He's not saying whatever other people think is fine. He's not saying dress for other people. Notice what he's saying? It's you and God. That's important because oftentimes dress standards become about you and other people. That's not what he's talking about. It's understanding that you have a relationship with God, and it can be good or bad, and you are your body. And it's an understanding that your body has sinned, and you need to recognize that. And one way you recognize that your body is sinful is by wearing clothes. That's why little babies don't care when they're naked. Right? You see little kids, one, two-year-olds, they couldn't care less. What's, what is that? I believe it's because they don't recognize their sinful nature. But you can untrain yourself from that too. And so God is putting precautions in place to keep people aware of sin, sin against him. So how does this all work out? Because so far it's just bad news about how bad people are and how good God is. Again, grace reconciles. God says, you are going to break the law. You notice they haven't broken the law yet? He says, you're going to. I already know you're going to do it. So here's what you're going to do when you break the law. When you do the wrong thing, here's how you fix it. You kill something. An altar of earth you shall make me, and you shall sacrifice on it your burnt offerings and your peace offerings. Those are two separate offerings. The burnt offerings was called the, the offering of atonement. God gave them the Ten Commandments. He says, when you break the Ten Commandments, something's got to be done or I'll kill you. So he said, here's what you do. You take an animal, you put your hand on it, and then you cut his throat and you burn the whole thing to ash. That's the burnt offering he's saying here. What's the symbolism? Your sin is transferred to the animal. The animal is completely destroyed. Nothing left. It's a reconciling method. But then the peace offering, what's the peace, peace offering? The peace offering is what you do after you atone for sin. The peace offering was killed, but then it was cooked and eaten. 
You ever been to a barbecue? Yeah. That's what the peace offering was. The meat's cooking. Everyone's happy. There's no problems. Why? Because the burnt offering's already been taken care of. And so God says, here's your peace offering. To recognize that you are back in my good graces, that everything's okay, let's eat together. And so they go, they get a cow, they put it on there, and they cook it, then they eat it together. That sounds great, doesn't it? It is great. It's the God who shook the mountain and sent the lightning saying, let's have a, let's have a meal together. Let's sit down and eat dinner together. Everything's fine. That's grace. Of course, something had to die first. So God says here, on this you shall sacrifice your burnt offerings and your peace offerings, your sheep and your oxen. In every place where I record my name, I will come to you and I will bless you. You who are sinful and wicked, I'll meet you and I'll bless you. You see, God, the judge who shakes the mountain, is now the father who cares for his people. Worship is local, personal, it's all-encompassing. That's what Israel saw here, that they were going to meet with God in a certain place, in a certain way, in a certain relationship, all under God's control. Doesn't that sound great? Let's go build an altar and kill something. No, of course not. Why not? Well, yeah, we got Christ, okay, but why not this way? Because this way is not good enough. This is not what we want. You see the, the stipulations that are required to build an altar, you have to build a certain way, you have to kill things, you have to, it's limited. So what we have next is we have Christ after the law. The book of Hebrews interprets this passage. In fact, studying Exodus with the book of Hebrews, it feels like it's cheating. Hebrews is like, let me tell you what that passage, let me tell you what Exodus meant. So when I preach from it, it's like, I don't know what this passage meant. I'm going to go to the back of the book, to the book of Hebrews, and say, oh, okay, thank you, whoever wrote Hebrews. Thanks for telling me exactly what happened. I kind of feel like I don't take this seriously. It may only get paid like half as much for preaching through Exodus, since all the answers are already there. But aren't you glad we have Hebrews so you know what this means? We're going to be assured that what I'm saying about Exodus is true because it's already been interpreted in the New Testament. That's how we can trust the Bible. And what we see here is that this is insufficient for our needs. It was never good enough. It was always limited. It's insufficient to solve the problem of a holy God and a sinful man. It's only a patch. Patch. It gets you through. But we need something entirely better, entirely new, and that's what Christ does. Christ offers a complete solution. And who was Christ? Christ kept the law. He didn't just do the right thing. He was the right thing. You see, he didn't just do what God said. He loved God. He loved holiness. When he stood at Sinai, he wasn't afraid. See, Israel stood at Sinai and they shook with fear. Jesus stands before Sinai and he says, this is great. I love this. I love the power of God revealed. I love the perfect standard. I love everything about it. That's why he was perfect, because he had perfect love. Hebrews says, but to the Son, to Christ, he says, your throne, O God, is forever and ever. A scepter of righteousness is the scepter of your kingdom. You have loved righteousness and hated lawlessness. 
You can stand before God with no fear as long as you love righteousness and hate lawlessness. Man can't do it, but Christ did it. He stands before God with no fear. He loves God, he loves God's holiness, and he loves man. Which is remarkable because God knows how bad you are. Christ knows how bad you are. But the Bible says in Hebrews 4, Seeing then that we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus the Son of God, let's hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but was in all points tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us therefore come boldly to the throne of grace, that we may obtain mercy and find grace and help to help in time of need. Isn't that great? Us who can't even stand before God without shaking in fear can go to Christ knowing that he loves us and he knows us. Don't we hide ourselves a little bit from everybody? Because if they knew all about us, they wouldn't want us. Christ says, I know everything about you. Every thought you had, every attitude, every heart condition, I know all of it, and I still love you. Isn't that better than what they had in Exodus? Someone who loves God perfectly and loves man perfectly. But see, he's great. Christ is great. But that's not enough either. Christ being perfect doesn't help me. It just shows me how bad I am. You see, if all you have is Christ as an example, that's just another law to make you feel guilty, to show you your shortcomings. If all you do is look to Christ as how you should live, it's just showing you how bad you are. So you need something more. You need that sacrifice. You need that being reconciled to God. But not over and over. You need it once for all. So Christ is a mediator. He is the perfect revelation of God. Who is God? Ask Jesus. Better yet, look at Jesus. Hebrews 1. God, who at various times and in various ways spoke in times past to the fathers by the prophets, like Moses, has in these last days spoken to us by his Son. The Old Testament and the New Testament are not the same thing. They're different. And the main difference is in the New Testament, Jesus shows up and explains everything that happened before. He is a mediator of the Old Testament. He's a mediator of God. He's the perfect revelation of God, the Son of God. Sometimes Son of God, what does that mean? It means a physical representation of God, perfectly. God in the flesh. But he's also the Son of Man. He speaks to God for us. Hebrews 2, inasmuch then as the children have partaken of flesh and blood, Christ himself likewise shared in the same, that through death he might destroy him who had the power of death, that is the devil, and release us. Therefore in all things he had to be made like his brethren, that he might be a merciful and faithful high priest. For in that he himself has suffered, being tempted, he's able to aid those who are tempted. Christ is just as human as we are just as human as we are. Every part of him is human. Body is human. Mind is human. Blood is human. He is made just like us. You see, the Israelites looked at Sinai and they said, that God is so different from us, he'll kill us. But we look at Christ and say, he's a man just like us. And yet he's also perfect. You see how God, how Christ mediates the presence of God? by being perfectly 100% God and 100% man. Gives us everything we need. Gives us all of God and meets us on our own terms. Amen. Comes down to our level. And he sacrifices. He is the atonement. You see, the atonement here was burn the animal. 
But Hebrews says, for it is not possible that the blood of bulls and goats could take away sin. So what do you need? You need to kill a person. You need a human sacrifice, but a perfect human sacrifice. Therefore, when he came into this world, he said, sacrifice and offering you did not desire, but a body you have prepared for me. In burnt offerings and sacrifices for sin, you had no pleasure. Didn't he tell him to do that? He's saying, yeah, but it wasn't good enough. It didn't satisfy me. God is not satisfied with what he told them back then. He says, in burnt offerings and sacrifices for sin, you had no pleasure. Then I said, behold, I have come. In the volume of the book, it is written of me to do your will, O God. By that will, we have been sanctified through the offering of the body, Jesus Christ, once for all. Jesus was killed and consumed, burnt completely up, destroyed by God. Imagine that animal, his throat slit, burned all day until there's nothing but ash. That's a picture of Christ. What Christ went through was worse. On that cross, he was totally consumed by God, burnt to ashes, because that's what sin requires, what God requires of sinful man. And so Christ became that for us, consumed for us. But you see, that's not the only sacrifice, is it? You have the atonement, the destruction of sin, but you also have the peace offering. That is Christ as well. How do we have, how do we have a meal with God? Hebrews 10, Therefore, brethren, having boldness to enter the holiest, holiest by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way, which he has consecrated for us through the veil that is his flesh. This is the peace offering, where you sit down together with a meal with Jesus. You sit in the presence of God with no fear, perfect fellowship, like a barbecue. At a barbecue, what do you have? You don't have fighting. You don't have arguing. You have fellowship. You have laughter. You enjoy each other's company. You put everything else as a problem to a side for now. That should be a symbol of your presence with God. That's what Christ has bought for us. He's an advocate forever. He makes sure that no matter what bad you're going to do, you can still sit down with God. Whatever you're going to mess up tomorrow, it's okay. Christ is still your advocate then. Forever, he stands before God for us. He's always on your side. He's always on your side. Isn't that great to have someone who's always on your side no matter what you do? That's Jesus. Sometimes we think Jesus is too perfect for us. No, that's all taken care of in the sacrifice. Now he's always on your side. Christ makes God local and benevolent to us. See, that was the point of Exodus. It was to make God with his people in a good way didn't quite work out back then because there wasn't enough things taking place. But now God is made local to us, present with us. He's no longer the judge that shakes Mount Sinai. Now he's the father, father who loves us. You know what's interesting is at the end of that passage where it talks about Christ being our sacrifice, it says, let us hold fast to the confession of our hope without wavering. And let us consider one another, not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together. Where'd that connection come from? What's going to church have to do with Jesus making us okay with God? That's the point. You see, church attendance is not something you do to make God happy. It's not something you do because you're supposed to. That's missing the entire point of the Bible. 
The reason you come to church with other Christians is so that you can talk about what Christ has done. It's so you can enjoy his fellowship. Do you not enjoy church services? Here's why. You're not looking at what Christ did. You're looking at everybody else. Or you're looking at yourself. God says, I want to be with you, and I want to be with you all together. And I made that possible through Christ. So show up on Sunday morning and celebrate it. Don't forsake the assembling of yourselves together as the manner of some is, but exhorting one another, building one another, encouraging one another, and so much the more as you see the day approaching. You know what day that is? When Christ comes back. For some people, it's new judgment. Not for us. So all the bad stuff that's keeping you out of church should be bringing you to church to say Christ has taken care of it. There's no judgment anymore. There's no fear anymore. If you make Christ central to your life and make it central to this church, you won't have to tell people they have to be at church. They won't have to come to worship. People don't want to come to worship because they're not getting enough of Christ here. Are you giving Christ to the people in this, in this church? Or are you distracting from him? Are you consumed with Christ? Because if you're consumed with Christ, we'll share it with people and our worship services will be a celebration of Christ's sacrifice for us, where God shines on us as a benevolent Father, always happy with us, always pleased with us. And we just respond with thanksgiving and praise, and it'll be like a big feast. where Everyone's happy, and everyone's praising God. Let's pray.